First John chapter two. Um, hmm, what is this? Our fifth message in First John A series called Assurance because we're going for assured eternal life, right? We don't want to assume. We want to know. So we're looking. That's what John's writing. He's trying to tell us who for sure is a Christian. What does it look like? Because there's definitely conditions for assurance. Not for salvation. Salvation is an unconditional event that God does in our life. But your assurance of that salvation is very much conditioned upon what you do and how you think and how you live. So that's what this book wants to portray. It's a mirror for us to see our own image in and to know, do I match up or do I not? If I match up, I know that I have eternal life. If I don't match up, um, there's, there's question marks. And we want to get to that place where we match up with with the qualifications that John writes about in this book, right? So that's what I hope we're going for in this message, um, in the series, really, this whole thing. So let us read tonight. We're in 1 John chapter 2, and we'll be in verse 18 all the way through verse 28 tonight. So let's read. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming... So now, many antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. So I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie... Just as it has taught you, so abide in Him. And Father, that is what we come tonight to do. We come to be abiding in Your Son. We want never to be separated or severed. We not want to be those who walk on our own power, or walk in our own way, or walk in our own worship of You but that we are conformed to your very words of life, and that that forms our worship, that that forms our walk, because we are totally abiding and dependent upon your Son. So bring that union tonight, I pray. Strengthen our faith. And if any are not assured here of their eternal life status, Lord, assure them with your Spirit tonight. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So... In this passage, John wants to make very clear to us that the assurance of eternity is at stake here. So, what he wants to make very clear is eternal values 
He says in verse 26, he wants to make sure that we are not deceived because there are those who are trying to deceive us. And so he gives the warning in verse 24, let what you heard in the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. So by abiding in Jesus, there's that promise of eternal life. And then he goes right away and says, but, well, he says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. So what's the deception that's going on? John is concerned with the assurance of their eternal security, their, their eternal life. He's saying, I don't want anyone to deceive you in such a way that you don't have eternal life. Now let me step, up, step back, because I realize I just phrased that in a way that might make you think I'm trying to say you can lose your salvation, which I'm not going there. What John is wanting to caution the church about are those who are going to lead those in the church in such a way that they never experience Jesus. That they never have true abiding. So he's concerned about eternal life when he starts to address this issue. Now, we want to identify, because this is at stake, we want to identify who these deceivers are. How do we know where they are? What are they up to? How do we recognize them? So let's do that for a second. He calls them Antichrist. You see that in verse 18 and in a couple other verses. He says, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist, that's a person, is coming, so now many Antichrists, those are people, have come. So we have these two Antichrists that he talks about. You can call the first one, capital A Antichrist. He's coming. But even now, there are little antichrists, little mirror people of this, this big guy, that are amongst us right now. And they're the ones trying to deceive you. So here's, here's the difference, okay? When we think of antichrist, we're thinking of that future world ruler, right? Who's going to come and say, I'm Jesus Christ, and make everybody follow him and worship him, and if they don't, he's going to cut their heads off and kill them all. And you have to take his mark. We're thinking of that Antichrist. That's capital A, the Persian Antichrist. And John, in his book of Revelation, says he's coming. He's going to come, and he's going to establish himself as Jesus, the Messiah, to come. Antichrist. You got, a, a, what do you call that? A compound word? Some of these smart people? Compound. Alright. You have anti, and then you have Christ. We know what Christ is. Christ refers to Jesus. But anti is a Greek prefix. <clears throat> Greek prefix. That can mean one of two things. The Greek prefix, when added to a person's name, means either this. It means either to claim to be that person. So anti-Christ means he's claiming to be Christ. Or it can refer to being in opposition to or the substitution of that person. So it could say, I'm against Christ, or it could say, I'm in the place of Christ. So, Antichrist, really, is an enemy who is either opposing or replacing Jesus. And when the Antichrist comes, he's going to do both of those. He's going to oppose Jesus by claiming himself as the replacement of Jesus. There's a world that rejects Jesus Christ as the Messiah, as the one from God come to save the world. And there's going to be a guy that comes on the scene and he says, I am him. And many are going to believe him. In fact, Jesus told the Jews, you don't believe in me, but one will come in his own name and you're going to believe in him. 
So, Antichrist is a guy who's going to oppose Jesus by claiming that he is him. He's going to try to replace him. Now, the second kind of Antichrist that we're dealing with is one John's concerned with in our passage. Those are the little a Antichrists. They're called that because they resemble the ultimate Antichrist to come. He's going to come, oppose Jesus by replacing Jesus. So the little Antichrists in the church are those who come and they're opposing Jesus in a much more subtle way than the Antichrist because they're trying to replace Jesus, but not with themselves. Heaven forbid they stand up and say, we're Jesus, follow us. We're going to see right through that. You creep, you liar, you Antichrist, get out of here. We excommunicate you right now. That would be way too clear for us. They come in much more subtly. See, what they're trying to do is not replace Jesus with themselves. We would call that blasphemy. They're trying to replace the traditional teaching of Jesus with their understanding of Jesus. So they come in with a doctrine, with some sort of message, and want to... We have Jesus as revealed in the Scriptures. John says, um, keep what you have heard from the beginning. So this traditional teaching, meaning it comes from the very beginning, it's the original teaching from Jesus himself. We have this, and they come along, and they use 90% of the truth, but then add 10% of what they want to replace the true Jesus with their version of Jesus. This is in total defilement of the second commandment, in which Jesus said, or God said, in Genesis, let me start over. It's in total defilement of the second commandment, which God said in Exodus, thou shalt not make any graven images. In short, don't carve for yourself your own little God. And oh, we would never be guilty of that in the church, carving little images, but we do philosophically, mentally, spiritually, the Antichrist come and they carve their neat little Jesus in a box that's more stomachable for other people and they say, this is him. But that is idolatry. Look at chapter 5, verse 16. Um, it's actually verse 21. 521, John said at the very end, I think this is the same thought he has. He says, little children, keep yourself from idols. What idols? The idols Antichrist are establishing in your hearts and minds within the church. Don't go there. Keep the traditional teaching of Jesus Christ, which is true. We see this in the Old Testament. If you want to, go ahead and go to Exodus 32. Keep your place here. Um, but I would, I, I'm mostly going to quote our references, but I do want you guys to see this one in Exodus 32, verse 4. Where Israel themselves were guilty of practicing the Antichrist practices. Exodus 32, verse 4. You guys are very familiar with the context. Moses is up on the mount. They've heard the Ten Commandments from the mountain. Now Moses is getting all the other detailed laws, like how to slaughter animals and stuff. And while Moses is up there, they're down on the ground saying, What happened to our God? What happened to Moses? He's dead. We're in trouble. Let's get a God to lead us. I know, like the ones in Egypt. Yeah, those. So they're pulling Egyptian theology into their heads and they're now constructing an idol as we're going to read here in Exodus 32 verse 4. So it says, He, this is Aaron, 
Aaron received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These, these golden calves they made, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Catch this. He said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And it's in all capital letters, as you notice, which means the name Yahweh. So Aaron says this. We're going to have a feast before this little golden calf. And he called the calf not just another god. He called it Yahweh himself. So what Aaron did was he replaced the true God of Israel who led him out of Egypt, Yahweh talking to Moses on the mountain, and he said, okay, this little God is now that thing. That great thing, that's terrifying, we don't want anything to do with it, probably swallowed Moses alive in the burning furnace. We're now making this Yahweh. We're stooping it down. We're, we're changing it. That's making a graven image. Not necessarily just worshipping something else that's not God. That's often what we think about idolatry. Yeah, we love Jesus, but there's also this other God I love. Christian idolatry is taking Jesus as he is and tweaking a couple things and making our own worship habits from it. This is what my Jesus demands from me. Well, I know that the Bible doesn't tell me to do that, but it's okay for me. And Antichrist come in and subtly seduce us in such a way. So we're back in 1 John. It's very clear that what John has done now is he's revealing the people he's warning the church about. The Antichrist. What have we seen so far in assurance? We've seen that the Christian who has assurance of eternal life loves Jesus through the manifestation of three things, right? We've seen so far. Assurance means you walk in the light as Jesus is in the light. Meaning we're in open honesty with God. We don't hide our sin when we sin. We don't keep walking in the darkness and, okay, God can't see. We openly confess and bring ourselves back into light. Light exposes all things. We're open with God. We're walking in the light. Secondly, that we're to obey the commandments of Jesus by loving one another as he commanded. So if we're doing these things, we have assurance. And then the third was, do not love the world. The world is contrary in its desires to the desires of God and Jesus. So, you have assurance if you're walking in the light, if you're keeping his commandments by loving each other and by not loving the world. Well, the Antichrist, by, by John saying those things, he's implying in the church are people that are not doing those things. Who are they? They're the Antichrist. So in other words, the Antichrists are not walking in the light. The Antichrists are not keeping God's commands by loving each other. The Antichrists are indefinitely loving the world. That's them. That's the people he's targeting. So that's one way to be able to identify them. Professing Christians while not walking as Christians. Is that a jump, Randy? Well... According to John, they're not quite the assured type. They're more the anti-Christ type. I love Jesus. You do. What Jesus? Because your life is showing me a different Jesus than the one that I love. So, let's pick up a couple clues here in our text. Look at verse 22. The Antichrist denies Jesus as the Messiah, meaning the Son of God. Verse 22 says, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is Antichrist who denies the Father, and the Son. The implication is as one, meaning Jesus is not God's Son. He's just a man. That's what Antichrist thinks. Um, secondly, is in verse 19. They separate themselves from the church. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For had they been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out. He's talking about the church. That's the us. 
that they might become plain that they are not of us. And in verse 26, they try to lead others into their beliefs and habits. Verse 26, these things I write to you about those who are trying to deceive you. So, that's what we're dealing with. People who have their own theology of Jesus. It's a little bit different, but that's their Jesus. It's not the true traditional teaching of Jesus. And they want us to hop on board. One way to identify them is that they often are in our church, but then they leave our church. They don't continue. Now, let me clarify. I don't mean, like some people that we can think of off the top of our heads, um, individuals who were once a part of this Bible study and then left this Bible study. That's not leaving. That's not what I mean by leaving the church. This is a church, not the church. So let me let me explain what the church is. The church is capital C church. That is the body of Jesus. If you love Jesus, you're going to love the church. Because it's his body. You're a part of it. Now, lowercase church is churches. It's, it's like this place. Um, Sunday Night Bible Study. We'll call this a church. Church of the Woods. We'll call that a church. Calvary Chapel, a girlhead. We'll call that a church. So, the one who leaves a church, we're not going to say anything about them. Because all the little churches are different manifestations of the body of Christ. You're free to go to whatever church you want. But when you leave the church of Jesus Christ being the people, the unified collection of Christians, and you leave that fellowship and want nothing to do with that, and you're done with it, John calls these people antichrist. And they have no assurance of eternal life whatsoever. Loving Jesus means that we are abiding in the church. If you love Christ, you will love His church. So, if they leave the church, they do not love Jesus. Consider this. If you love Jesus, you have to love the church because of what the church in essence is. Consider Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22. There Paul says, God put all things under the feet of Jesus and gave Jesus as head over all things in the church. The church which is His body. It's the body of Jesus. The fullness of Him who fills all in all. So if the church is the body of Jesus and Jesus is the head and I'm a Christian and I'm part of that body, I have to love the body. I'm not going to walk away and say, I can't stand church. I'm a Christian. I love Jesus, but I just can't stand church. I severely have question marks in my head about those people. You love the people of God. You love to be with them. You love to be encouraged in their midst. Because you're part of the body. And the body doesn't hate itself. The body embraces itself. 1 Corinthians 12, 12. For just as the body, that's the church, is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. We're all members of the same body. And it's impossible to love the body which is Jesus and not want to be part of the body. 
It, it does not coincide. It doesn't make sense. So John says very severely in verse 19, Look, had they been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out. That it might become plain that they weren't of us. That's true. There are many who are in the midst of us. I don't want to say there's many here, heaven forbid, but in the church as a whole, there are many in the church who are not actually of the church of Christ. John calls them antichrist. Jesus called them weeds. Matthew 13. He told the story about the farmer who went out into his field and sowed wheat. And the wheat was sown and he went to bed that night. Well, in the night, the servant saw his enemy come trickle in. And the enemy had seeds for weed. And he started throwing the weed out into the field. And so, when the, when the um, what do you call it, not the fruit, but like the sheaves, when the plants started to grow, they said, look, master, your enemy came during the night and put weeds amongst the wheat. Clearly, there's a weed, there's wheat, there's a weed, there's wheat. Should we pull the weeds out? Because this is hideous. This is ugly. And the farmer said, don't do it. Let the weed grow with the weeds. And when it's all grown up and the fruit is born and the harvest is ready, then pull the weeds out. At the end. Because what would happen is if you pull the weed out while the wheat's trying to grow, you're going to pull it all out together because of the way the roots are entangled and you ruin the whole harvest. Rather, let it grow together, and at the very end, when you pull it all out, then separate the weed from the wheat. And that was Jesus' way of saying, in my body, in my church, there are fakers and there are assured Christians. There are antichrists and there are lovers of Christ. So, there's definitely the fakers in there, and he says they become plain because sometimes they're going to just totally leave the fellowship. Think about how many we know. At least I, I probably know more because I, unfortunately, have to watch this at times. Um, those who are part of the fellowship, you totally think they love Jesus, and then all of a sudden, they don't just leave our group, they leave the group worldwide. They have nothing to do with the Church of Jesus. And it leaves a question mark right there. It says, were they ever assured of eternal life? Or were they just weeds amongst us? Oh, that's weird. It's like the Holy Spirit's descending all of a sudden. <laughs> Someone's going to start speaking on tongues here in just a second. Um, <laughs> Alright, so this is one way that we begin to... Um, what do we mean by remaining in the church? Because don't get me wrong here. Just because you sit in church all your life and you never leave it is not going to guarantee for you assurance of eternal life. Okay, you can go to church all you want as, who is it, Chuck Smith, I think, says, um, going to McDonald's does not make you a hamburger. As someone else says, walking in a garage doesn't make you a mechanic. So, similarly, going to church doesn't make you a Christian. And Aesop tells the fable of a shepherd who once found a stray wolf cub. And he said, oh, my heart hurts for it. So he, he raised the wolf cub amongst the shepherding dogs and amongst the sheep. And as the wolf grew, there would be times when 
um, you know, they were herding the sheep. The wolf was right there with the sheepdogs, herding the sheep, being obedient, doing everything good. But at times a wolf would come and snatch away one of the sheep. And all the shepherding dogs and the little wolf cub that was raised amongst them would go chase after the wolf themselves. And um, some of the shepherding dogs didn't have the energy. So, of course, they, you know, they backed off. They can keep up with the big bad wolf. And so they backed off. But the wolf kept right on him and pretended like he's going to go get him. And in the end, when they went into the woods and the, the shepherd couldn't see him anymore, the wolf stopped with the other wolf and said, all right, let's have the feast. And he partook of eating the lamb with him. A little cheap traitor. And he'd come back wiping the blood off his mouth as if nothing happened. Oh, he got away. Well, occasionally there would be too much time between oh, those occurrences where he could feast on a little lamb in secret. So he would try to secretly snatch a lamb off on his own and wander off into the woods have his little potty break and eat eat the thing. And one day the shepherd caught the little wolf cub doing this. And so of course he hacked him to death and finished the job. But this lesson learned that um, the lesson the Christian learns from Aesop is that just because a wolf is raised amongst shepherding dogs and sheep doesn't make the wolf a sheep or a shepherding dog. The nature of the dog is still a wolf. The nature was not addressed. And you can be raised in the church. You can be hanging out with pastors all your life, have Christian friends, hear 1,253 teachings from Brandon and a million more from Jesse, and still not have anything about the nature changed. So just abiding in the church means absolutely nothing for your eternal salvation. What matters more is that you remain in the church by believing and keeping the traditional teachings of Jesus Christ, not by making our own theology. For example, um, the traditional teachings of Christ. What are these? Let us remember what happened in Matthew 16 between Peter and the disciples and Jesus. There, and by, by the way, by tradition, I'm not talking about like Catholic tradition and stuff. We're talking about the original teachings that Jesus established the church upon. So what are these? Let's find out. Peter and Jesus and his disciples have a little intercourse in Matthew 16. And Jesus asked them, um, Who do you say that the Son of Man is? Oh, some of them shoot their hand up. Some say you're John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah. You're a prophet. You're an amazing teacher. Great example for moral encouragement. She said, okay, okay, that's fair. But I want to know what you say that I am. Who do you say? And Peter pipes up, You're the Christ. The son of the living God. And Jesus said, bingo, Peter. Flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And upon this, we would say at Calvary Chapel, that confession that Jesus is the son of the living God, upon that confession I will build my church and the gates of Hades will never prevail against it. That is the foundation of the church. That's the traditional teaching about Jesus, is that He is the Messiah, meaning He's the chosen one to save us from our sins, and He's the Son of God. And that's why He's able to be the Messiah. That is the traditional teaching of Jesus. And if anybody says anything else or anything contrary, as Paul would say, anathema. Let them go to hell. So we remain in the church by remaining in the traditional teachings of Jesus. We hold these, we love them, we cherish them, we teach them, we believe them, we live them out. That's what it means to remain in the church. It doesn't mean to keep your attendance chart perfect or consistent. That's what it means. This is illustrated in Genesis 8. 
you guys heard this maybe three months ago or something when we were in Genesis, how you guys recall when Noah was on the ark and the floodwaters had abated and they're waiting for it to the, to the waters to descend and Noah wants to know, is there dry land out there? Can we get off this boat anytime soon? Because everyone's throwing up and everyone's killing each other because we're sick of living on each other on this love boat. Yellow submarine. So he sends out a raven and a dove. The raven goes out and he never comes back because the raven finds meat, floating carcasses and rotting flesh all over the place. He's at home. He eats the flesh. He eats the death. He indulges himself in it. The dove goes out and the dove doesn't, he, he doesn't find anything he likes at all. He comes right back to the boat. I, I can't stand this place. I'm coming back. The ark is Christ. And the raven and the dove represent two types of people in the church. The raven would be the Antichrist. They go out into the world and they find plenty to satisfy them. They find lots of flesh, lots of carnage, lots of death, lots of sin. And they're satisfied there. They don't come back. But the dove goes out and doesn't even see a thing that he can rest his foot on. Nothing is here for me. Flees back to the only place he knows, the Church of Christ, and there he stays. There he abides. That's what we are to be by remaining in the church. That's how we know the true character, the true condition. We have assurance of eternal life because we love the church of Jesus. Not the building, not the pastors but the entire unified body. We're all one in Christ. And we have assurance because we love that. And you might have a moment in the world and I don't want that anymore. I'm coming back. And we pray for those who've left our group, who've left the church as a whole. We, we know some of them from amongst us who are in this practice now. And we pray for them that, that they have enough of the carnage. That they be like the dove that comes back. So... Um, how do we protect ourselves here? How, how do we not be deceived by Antichrist? How do we not be like the raven, but, but remain like the dove? I think John gives us our answer in 2 verse 20. It says, But you have been anointed. What does that mean? I'll fix that word in a second. You have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. Or it could literally read, You know everything. Okay, so who's the Holy One? The Holy One is the one that's anointing us. So we want to know who the Holy One is before we understand what anointing means. The Holy One is Jesus. Because only one other time in the Bible is Holy One used, and it's John himself who uses the word in reference to Jesus. It's John chapter 6, verse 69. The disciples say this, We believe and know that you, Jesus, are the Holy One of God. So, you've been anointed by the Holy One. Who is this? Jesus. We've been anointed by Jesus. Alright. Now, compare verse 20 to verse 27. We're looking at the word anointing. In verse 27 it says, But the anointing that you receive from Him, so we've received it from God, abides in you, secondly, so it's from God, secondly, it abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but His anointing teaches you about everything. So first, this anointing is received from God. Second, this anointing abides in us. And third, this anointing teaches us. What Jesus said about the Holy Spirit 
in the Gospel of John, so we're, remember, we're using consistent authors, we're, we're getting his same train of thought. What John says in John chapter 14 about the Holy Spirit is those exact three things. Let me, let me read them for you real quick. The Father will give you another helper, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells with you and will be in you, and the Holy Spirit will teach you all things. Those three things in verse 27. So, we conclude that the anointing refers to the Holy Spirit, and it comes from Jesus. So, all of that to settle and to say that the answer John has for us is we've been anointed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will guard us. He'll keep us in truth. He will protect us from Antichrist. So if you have the Holy Spirit, follow the Holy Spirit and worry not. So let me clarify real quick what anointing means. It's not a word to use very much. I mean, you guys hear people like, he's anointed of the Lord. Well, John says, you are anointed, all of us. So anointing, first of all, means that we belong to God. All right? You don't anoint anything unless you're... What, what the Old Testament prophets did is they would anoint someone who was set aside for God. So in other words, you belong to God now. So to be anointed means you belong to God. Romans 8, 9 says this. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. So, get anointed with the Spirit, you belong to Christ. It's a great assurance. Anointing also means that we are appointed by God. To anoint means to appoint. You're setting them off. You're, you're sending them for a specific task. So, through the Spirit, Jesus has appointed all Christians. These were anointed. What have we been appointed to do? <laughs> we have been appointed to the discernment of truth. And this is where it's key that the Holy Spirit is in us. We have been appointed to the discernment of truth that we can know not to follow Antichrist. This becomes clear in verse 20. Um, you all have knowledge, or it could read, you know everything. Verse 27, toward the end it says that he teaches you. So we've been appointed to discern what is right and wrong. You know that this is the true teaching of Christ because the Spirit confirms that. You know that this is sketchy, like the first time I heard Rob Bell, <laughs> because the Spirit within you says something like, this isn't right. I can't tell you what it is. Now I can because of thanks to his new book, but I couldn't quite then tell you what it is, but something just wasn't rubbing right. So, so be sensitive to that. That's the gift of the Spirit keeping you in the traditional teaching of Christ, which is how we abide in the church, which is how we have assurance that we have eternal life. So, real quick, a couple passages that show that we are anointed and appointed to discern truth. 1 Corinthians 2.10 These things God has revealed to us through His Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. 1 Corinthians 2.14 The natural, meaning the unsaved person, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for the things of the Spirit of God are folly to him, because he's not able to understand them, because those things are discerned only by the Holy Spirit. John 14.26 but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance everything that I've said to you. And John 16, 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears from me, He will speak and He will declare to you the things that are to come. For He is our teacher of truth. So, that's what the Holy Spirit does. He testifies to us truth. Rather than... Um, saying that those, those superstitions and those new revelations from those people over there, not true. 
Keep to what you've heard from the beginning. As some people creatively say, if it's new, it's not true. The traditional teachings of Jesus, the Spirit will guide us in. He'll keep us in that truth. The Holy Spirit is an infallible teacher. He will teach us perfectly. So, this is where um, we're going to finish up in verse 27 because we do need to clarify something that I'm saying. Brandon, you're saying that the Holy Spirit becomes a teacher, keeps us abiding in the church, the true traditional teachings of Jesus. But how come in verse 27 John says this? But the anointing that you receive from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. (laughs) You have no need that anyone should teach you. Jeremiah 31-34, this is fulfillment of that. It says, No one shall any more teach his neighbor, saying, Know the Lord, for all that, uh, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. So, New Testament times, we're not going to need any more teachers. And John says, um, You have no need that anyone should teach you anymore. But what's funny is that as John says that, he's teaching them. So clearly, John is not saying you don't need to be taught anything anymore. I think that what John's saying is because you've been anointed with the Holy Spirit to discern truth, you no longer need to be at the mercy of someone else's teaching because you have your own private interpreter living within you who will confirm whether they say truth or not. Let me say that again. What we no longer have need of is that you guys are dependent upon what I say and you're only at the mercy of what I say. Because everything that I should say should resonate truth in your heart to the Spirit. So that we're no longer dependent. And we're no longer have to say, oh my gosh, what if our, what if our youth pastor is an antichrist and he's leading us all to hell? What if? What if? Let the Spirit confirm that to you. But I'm not, though, because I say that's not true. But I'm confirmed truth for you. So, look, if we abide in the church, we will abide in Jesus. Because the Holy Spirit will keep teaching us the true traditional teachings of Jesus. This is truly Jesus. Not some mythological, new, postmodern concept of Him. Don't go there. The Spirit says just, just keep simple, traditional, true teachings of Jesus. And He'll guide you in that truth. He'll tell you, just, just excommunicate what that guy said, but trust what this guy said. He'll lead you in that. So that you don't have to worry, oh my gosh, I'm severed from Christ. I'm severed from the church because I'm believing something that's not really true. Just trust the Spirit. So, all this to say, all this to conclude, I believe that we have assurance of eternal life through our love for the church. And you guys are going to love the church if you love Christ. You're going to want to always be a part of some sort of church. And then pray for those people that, you know, they, I'm totally a Christian. I believe all that stuff, but they want nothing to do with us. Pray for those people. Because we don't, according to John, we don't have assurance for them. We just have assumptions. And that is dangerous. So let's conclude with verse, uh, what is it, verse 24? Verse 24 and 25. Oh, this is. He says, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. So if what you heard, the traditional true teachings of Jesus, abide in you, you will abide in Jesus. You're good. And... Verse 25, this is the promise that he made to us. Or, 
this is the assurance that he made to us. Eternal life. So that means if you keep the true traditional teachings of Jesus rather than forming your own idol, because the Holy Spirit's going to guide you to keep those true traditional teachings, you're not going to follow Antichrist, but you're going to stay in the church because you love the church, because you love Christ. And then the conclusion is, Paul, uh, John said, this is the assurance. All of this, that you, you stay abiding in the true teachings of Jesus. You're still in the church. You love the church. This is the assurance. This is the promise. Eternal life is the result. So, Father, that's our desire is to be assured Christians, to know, to stand, to be unshaken by any doubt. God, may we be those who abide continually, who love your church. May we not be... May no one in this group fall on the wayside and thus confirm that we were never truly a part of it. But may we love and treasure everything about you. Everything. And Lord, it would be improper for us to close here without offering a prayer. For those whom we know, do not love your church presently. And God, we even know some who have been with us and do not. And we pray that your spirit would guide them in truth. Awaken them. Pull them back home. And let their natures change, that they can be assured saints, rejoicing in our salvation alongside with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.